Well, I can tell you that we have a concern right off the bat. I can't see the clock. Uh, Please remain standing for uh, the reading of today's sermon text. It's uh, titled, uh, Forbearing One Another and Forgiving One Another, uh, but it might be better titled, The Gifts of God, because I think that's more the theme today, The Gifts of God. I'll read uh, Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Beloved of the Lord, hear the very words of God. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man has a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be thankful. Let's pray together. Our merciful and gracious Father, on this delightful day we have gathered together to sing your praises, to pray to you, and to hear your word. And Lord, today by the powerful ministry of your living word and life-giving spirit, we pray that the reading and the hearing of and the preaching of your word will be mixed with faith and that you will use it to conform us, change us, transform us, make us more and more like Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. There was a family in Czechoslovakia that during the later stages of the Cold War, um, they're actually uh, still there by God's grace, but this family believed that they were called by faith to serve their underground community, both Christians and uh, communist, communist distance. They believed they were called to serve them in love, focusing on hospitality and encouragement. You see, they were intent on strengthening a subculture that could endure the horrors of a totalitarian government. In addition to uh, hospitality and encouragement, they also trained people on how to endure an interrogation, how to suffer through torture at the hands of the communist secret police. Their family story is an amazing example of Christian community overcoming the spiritual wickedness in high places. In this case, it was clearly manifested in earthly realities. You see, they laid down their lives in love, and service, even when their commitment to the community landed their patriarch in prison. But the part of their story that brought me to tears was an impossibly simple gesture. It's barely even mentioned in what is written about them. You see, up to 20 people a day would flow through their house. Many, if not most of them, were about to face interrogation and torture, possibly death, by the hands of the secret police. But the part that I struggle to understand is that there were many times when these people would come back to their house after the interrogation or the torture, tears running down their face because they had had cracked during the torture and during the interrogation. And they had given up everybody in their community. They'd given them 
their names, and their locations. And this family, with great joy, would attend to their wounds, would wipe the tears from their eyes, and they would let them know that they were forgiven by God and by them. Is that not amazing? As we think about, and as we're on the verge of actually building a physical church building, with all the attention to the details that have been put into that building, we'll take a few minutes today to talk about this building that's sitting here in front of me, these living stones that form that temple made without hands. See, the question before us is, how are we building a resilient, lasting culture and community? A community that can stand fast against the world, the flesh, and the devil. A culture that can not only overcome seismic shifts in our society and culture, but one that can actually thrive. Individuals, families, and a holy family of families enabled to glorify God and encourage one another as we work through and process through our sins against the Lord and against each other. So what are these vital characteristics that we need to strengthen, that we need to learn and strengthen and apply as a body so that we, you and I, can smash through the gates of hell. So I have good news and bad news for you on this count. You see, you and I cannot do this. No matter how hard we try or what methods we deploy, Regardless of the good books that we've read or conferences that we have attended or the systems that we try to put into place, if you and I rely on you and I, we are doomed. The only hope our body has to outlast the flowers that are blooming outside these walls right now is to rely with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength on the gifts of God. Amen? So we're, we're sort of coming down in the middle of the book of Colossians. And that's a little awkward, so I'm going to try to, without taking too much time, start at the beginning of the book and try to get us to where we are now. So if you want to turn over to Colossians chapter 1. We'll start there. And in the very greeting, Paul lays out really the whole point of this book. In verse 2, he says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is reaching out to these believers. He's, he's written to these believers to encourage them and to build them up, to commend them, and to remind them to per- persevere. He speaks of their a well-known love for each other in verses 4 and verses 8. Even in the opening, he refers to them as saints and as faithful Brethren, you see, they are re- they're relying on this pattern. It's a simple pattern. It's one that starts in the very beginning of the Bible, works all the way through to the end, but is very clear in the book of Colossians. And this pattern of gifts, these gifts from God, looks something like this. We have grace. We're given grace. And that flows into reconciliation, which flows into grace, which then flows into 
peace with God and with our brethren. Which then flows into even more grace, enabling us to walk according to the manner in which we've been called. Which leads us to grace. Because when we stumble, we'll be looking again for that grace. And the pattern starts all over again. There's another idea we need to get our minds wrapped around as we go through this. And that is the already, not yet. We talk a lot about this in reform circles. But I just want to be clear that we understand what we're talking about. You see... um, God, from his perspective, he can see the end from the beginning. So he speaks to us in a manner that is sometimes confusing, because sometimes it sounds like he's saying that we are already this thing, and it's true. And then he says that we need to strive towards this thing, which is true. And then sometimes he says that we are this thing in eternity, which is true. It's the already, not yet. You see, the the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. And then John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which is taking away the sins of the world. And then the Apostle John tells us in the book of Revelation, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Pastor Lovett has reminded us at least several times since I've been here that we are saved and we are being saved and that we will be saved. Amen? So I want you to be thinking about this pattern of grace, these gifts that flow around in this circle and this concept of already not yet. So as Paul is writing to these believers, to these faithful brethren, he is telling them that they have been reconciled to God, right? In Colossians 1, 4 through 6, we read this. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard it before in the word of truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, it brings forth fruit. And as it does also in you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. These brothers and sisters were already bearing fruit according to the gospel. And as we move down a little bit to verses 13 and 14, Paul says, the Lord has delivered us from the power of darkness. He has translated us from the kingdom. He has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. This is the power of what we are talking about that we have redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, even the forgiveness of sins. And then as we continue in chapter 1, down to verse 20 and 22, we read this, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in his body, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. The message so far is you have been reconciled. You are at peace. You faithful brothers are already bearing the fruit of love towards God and one another. 
So even as they possess this reality, as they live in that reality, they are also encouraged in this letter to continue to walk according to that reality. You see, the the impact of God's gracious gifts bring us election, atonement, the gospel call, the inward call, regeneration, conversion of faith and repentance, justification, sanctification, and glorification. As one who has been reconciled, this is your reality. You have been saved. You have been redeemed. You are a child of God. And the Lord declares these certain things to be true about you. You were dead, but now you're alive. You were under God's wrath and curse, but now you've been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, cleansing you from all your sins. You were of your father, that old serpent, Father Lies. But now are you the sons of wisdom and truth. You were in Adam But now you are in Christ. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. But now you are fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. And you see, because you have received these gifts, these things are declared to be true of you. And we are encouraged, yea, we're we're commanded to walk, to live, to live out with one another the light of these proclamations. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, we read this. That you might walk, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. You are called to walk according to those declarations. And in Colossians 2, 6, and 7, we read this. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. There are these declared realities that are true about us. And then we are commanded to walk in those realities, to live those out. But the, the, the key here, the foundation of this idea really comes down to this, that you are in Christ. We need, to get our, we need to get our heads wrapped around that a little bit. We are in Christ. We have put on his righteousness. He has taken our sin and given us his righteousness. In Colossians 1, 10 through 14, we read this, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness, who has translated us 
into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And as we move to Colossians chapter 3, the first four verses there says, If ye be risen with Christ, if ye be risen with Christ, we need to understand this word that if then you have been risen with Christ, maybe since you have been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you appear with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, you are in Christ. Amen? So then, according to Colossians chapter 3, what are we to do? Since you are in Christ, what are you to do? In verses 5 through 7 of chapter 3, we read this. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Flee lust, might be a quicker way to say that. For which things the sake of wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in which ye also walked sometimes when you lived in them. So we are to flee those earthly lusts. And then we're given two really specific instructions in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, and then verse 12. Are you ready? Verse 8 and 9. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Let no one lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. You know what's interesting about this list? It's how you interact with others. It's how you love your neighbor. It even includes how we talk about one another. Especially with a brother that we may be out of sorts with. And then in verse 12, we read this. Put on, therefore. And I want to talk about this put on for just a minute. We're told to put off these things and put on these things. And it's literally like putting on a robe, a garment. You are to take off the filthy garments of the old man and throw them away. Never to be seen again. And you're to put on the robe of righteousness. You are in Christ. You dwell within that righteousness. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. That's you. Set apart and beloved by God the Father. You are to put on bowels of mercy and kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. Again, these, these items that you are to put on correspond with the items you were to put off. You are to be dressed in the righteousness of Christ as we love God the Father and as we love one another. But I'm afraid that what we tend to do is we tend to put on the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6 and go after each other in that garb. But you see, that that armor is reserved for the, the devil, right? The wiles of the devil. 
for spiritual wickedness in high places. Those weapons of warfare are not for the brethren, but this robe of Christ is for the brethren. See, it tells us that we are to forbear with one another. That we are to forgive one another. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. You know, we talk a lot about culture. The culture of the world, the culture of our church, the culture in our community. What do we mean when we say culture? So, I went to government schools, and I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, so I usually have to work up, look up words like this when I want a good, solid definition. I go to the 1828 dictionary. I highly recommend it. And I was surprised what I read about culture. The act of tilling and preparing the earth for crops. First definition. Cultivation. The application of labor and other means of improvement. Second definition. The application of labor or other means to improve good qualities in or growth as the culture of the mind. Culture of virtue. Fourth definition. Any labor or means employed for improvement, correction, or growth. So I was surprised by the agricultural nature of the definition. But then as I got to thinking about it, I'm like, no, actually, this is exactly what's going on, right? The culture out there is trying to prepare us to receive the seed that they want us to have. And what we want to do is cultivate virtue, right? And knowledge and temperance and all that. But this culture that we're trying to develop. Right at the heart, even the heart of this letter to the Colossians, is forbearing with one another and forgiving one another. To forbear means to, to hold back, to withhold from action. What this means is that there's somebody who is actively sinning against you. And in real time, you're overlooking that sin. You're forgiving them of that sin, knowing how much you have been forgiven. And this forgiving of one another is grace, right? This is somebody who has sinned against you, and you approach them in a spirit of grace, ready to forgive them. So this is forgiveness in real time and for forgiving them after the fact. Now I want you to be clear on something. These are people that have actually sinned. It says if any man has a quarrel against any. That means there's, there's a real offense here. You know, even, even this morning, just minutes ago, we all said this together. Give us this day our daily bread. What's the next line? You sound really excited about that. What's the next line? Does that scare anybody? Every week, and I would imagine many of you say this at home, every week we ask the Lord to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.
but it is possible. We've been given away. Think of this. Matthew 18, 21 through 22. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall I, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Okay, I get that I'm supposed to forgive my brother, but where's, where's the limit? What's the limit? Anybody do math here? What's seven times 70? 490. So on that 491st time, you're allowed to just hammer them, right? I don't think so. I don't think that's what that means. In the Gospel of John, we read an account where Peter denies Jesus three times. This is a serious offense. We're told that if we deny Jesus, that he will deny us before our Heavenly Father. And yet... In John 21, we see that Jesus forgives and restores Peter for each one of the denials. The Lord walked this out in an example for us. We are to forgive our brothers. There's only one way to do that, though. We see it in 1 Corinthians 13. It says... In our passage here, it says that we are to put on charity, right? What is charity? Charity is that love that God has for us. We are to put on charity. Remember the robe again? You put that on. And you treat your brothers and your sisters and your husband or your wife, your brother, your sister, the person sitting next to you, your mom and dad, I miss any relationships there? Read 1 Corinthians 13. I encourage you to memorize it. See, charity is the glue that cements us to the triune God and to each other. It is the bond of perfectness, the passage tells us. So we are to forgive one another as Christ forgave us. That means you have to lay down your life. Right? That means you may have to suffer for somebody else. Greater love has no man than this. What's the next part? And lay down your life. But where does this lead us? Where does this take us? See, because the next passage says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. I don't know about you, but I can always use a little more or a lot more peace of God. Amen? This is a really important concept to Paul. He tries to communicate it many different times in many different ways. 51 times in Paul's letter does he use this word peace, and it's a very specific word for peace. It's trying to encompass the word shalom from the Old Testament, which we'll get into that in just a minute. But this is, this is an idea that was prophesied with the coming of the Messiah, right? In Isaiah chapter 9, we read this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the what? Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. So when the prince of peace comes and establishes his government, it will continue to grow. And the peace 
will grow with it. Eternally, everlastingly, forever. And see, we tend to come at this thinking that peace just means without conflict or that there's no war, right? If somebody says, like, a peace agreement, right? Oh, ceasefire, right? And, and it's correct. That's, that's the way we use peace, absence of war. But shalom, shalom was something else, something rich, something that is nearly impossible to define because we have not ultimately experienced it. You see, shalom is um, uh, prosperity. It's health. It is welfare. It is every kind of good. The peace established through Christ is this shalom, the eschatological state of cosmic restoration that the Old Testament prophets told us about, right? Wholeness, soundness, health, well-being, prosperity, peace as opposed to war, no strife, a harmonious agreement between persons or things, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. We know this story, don't we? And this was one of the promises that Jesus left us. He says in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives. Therefore, let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Beloved, if you're ever troubled in your heart, or if you're dealing with fear, look to the Lord and his peace, right? Let this peace rule in your heart. Colossians chapter 1 Starting at verse 19, it says this, For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. It's that cosmic coming of peace, right? Right? And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your minds. He is now reconciled. This is one of the main points of Paul's message in all of his letters. In Ephesians, he starts off the same way as he did to the Colossians. Grace to you and peace. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who has made both one. And having broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity or that conflict, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body. And we're going to get to that here in a minute. Reconciled both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off. Isn't that amazing? In Ephesians chapter 4, we read this. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called 
with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is in all and through all and in you all. You have become that temple, right? God dwells in you as he dwells here amongst us. Ephesians 6, as I referenced earlier, it ends, though, with being able to go out and proclaim the gospel of peace. See, Paul refers to the gospel itself as the gospel of shalom. And then he closes with, in Ephesians chapter 6, peace be to the brethren and love with faith. This shalom is the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, fearing nothing from God, and consequently content with its earthly lot, whatever it is. Paul in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul again in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing. Don't be troubled in your mind. Don't be afraid. But in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This peace of God keeps your heart. This word keep is like a military fortress. This peace of God surrounds you like a military fortress to keep you from all harm. Which is what our passage is telling us. Let the rule, let the peace of God rule in your heart, right? This rule is really interesting. We would call this word rule an umpire or a referee, right? When there's a hard call to make on the play in front of you, what do you do? You choose peace. Let the rule of peace of God rule in your hearts. This peace of God will drive you to peace every time. Let it. Choose peace. Let it be the, the decisive factor, right? And I'm not talking about sacrificing principles here. Remember I said that these people have actually sinned against you. But it's now on you on how you react, We should relate to one another in a way that facilitates and demonstrates the peace that God has secured for us. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Pastor Bradshaw reminded us at the uh, presbytery that the Beatitudes are a current reality. That we are, we have been made peacemakers. We have been called the children of God. As peacemakers, we have been called into one body.
See, God has called you, and he has called me, and he has called us. Not simply just just to be his people, but to live life together in a certain way. This life is bound up with the calling and cannot be separated from it. See, the gospel is inescapably individual. Each of us on our own is called by God and we respond by faith individually. And yet at the same time, we are called into one body. The gospel is inescapably individual and equally inescapably corporate. We are called by faith into one body. It's a body of sinners. And we have to be ready to deal with that. We have to be ready to interact with each other on that basis. It takes us to the last part of the passage. How do we respond to all of that? All of that grace, the reconciliation, the peace, the forgiveness, the love and the joy we have interacting with each other. It calls us to be thankful, to be grateful. And this is the same word that we use for the Eucharist. We'll be thinking about this a little more here in just a few minutes, right? But believers who are full of the gratitude to God for his gracious calling will find it easier to extend to fellow believers the grace of love and forgiveness and to put aside petty issues that might inhibit the expression of peace within our community. This cycle of grace reconciliation and peace and walking it out together is how the family of God, I'm sorry, is how the family mentioned earlier in the sermon was able to lay down their lives in the midst of the storm. The communist government had taken nearly everything from them. But they couldn't take their peace and they couldn't take their joy and they couldn't take their thankfulness. They poured themselves out time and time again for their community. They were letting the peace of God rule in their hearts. This is how they were enabled to forgive those who had sinned against them. Those who might have ratted out the very people in the community to be called down to the secret place for interrogation, torture, possible imprisonment, and maybe even death. The question is, how are we going to deal with the horsemen if we can't contend with the footmen? You guys know this phrase? It's from the Old Testament. It means if you can't fight the small battles and gain victory there, how are you going to deal with it when the big issues come? This family was dealing with people who were traitorous. They sold out their friends so that the punishment would stop, so that the torture would cease. And their their community, knowing that they had been forgiven themselves for uh, for treasonous activity against God, were able to embrace their brothers and sisters and forgive them. So how are we going to build resilient, lasting culture and community? A community that can stand fast against the world, the flesh, and the devil? How are we going to deal with this ever-changing society and culture in which we live? How are we going to thrive in such a time as this? It's only as 
individuals and families and a holy family of families is enabled to glorify God and encourage one another in love and forgiveness, strengthening each other and building each other up as we charge through the gates of hell. I'll close here. I'm reminded of Psalm 23. As the family described in my illustration and as we live in reality, surely this is the valley of the shadow of death. And yet, as we come to the Lord's table, we know it has been declared from before time began that we are at peace with God. Your sins are forgiven. And this enables us to be at peace with one another. We can forgive each other. We will come to this table reconciled. We will come to this table in love and forgiveness. In the midst of the enemies round about us, the Lord has prepared a table of peace for you and I. Let's pray. Father, what good gifts you give to your children. You've given us the most precious gift imaginable, and that is your son. And that in all lowliness and meekness and willingness to lay down his life for others and to live according to your will, he died for our sins. He suffered and died. And yet you saw fit to raise him to life. To then raise him to glory where he sits at your right hand. Father, we thank you for your word this morning as it encourages us to walk as Jesus walked. As it encourages us to love one another as Jesus loves us to forgive one another as Jesus forgives us. Father, pour out your Spirit upon us. Let our cups run over full of your Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.